Hello everyone! Welcome back to the Constructional Approach to Animal Welfare and Training Podcast. We are your host, I am Masa. Hello everybody, and I'm Sean. We hope that you are cuddled up with your animal companions and ready for this exciting episode. Before we begin, we have a big announcement. Yesterday, we launched a registration for our two-day webinar on March 26th and 27th. In this webinar, Morgan Katz and Sean Will will explore with you the application of the constructional approach to solve common behavior concerns and fearful behaviors we see with dogs in homes and animal shelters. So please check out CAWT.com forward slash webinar for more details and to register. The first 10 people will get an early bird ticket. We cannot wait to welcome you at this educational and enjoyable virtual experience. In today's episode, we are very excited to welcome Morgan Katz, the speaker of this upcoming webinar. She will share with us her life stories that led to her passion of working with shelter dogs and their new families. Before we jump into the interview, we would like to introduce you all to Morgan Katz. Morgan Katz is the Director of Behavior Services for the Adoption Centers at the MSPCA Angel in Boston, Methuen, and Centerville, Massachusetts. In this role, she oversees the animal behavior programs, including intake, behavior assessments, in-care training, and behavior support, matchmaking, and adoption counseling for the difficult-to-place dogs, and both surrender prevention and post-adoption behavior support to members of the community. She also assists with staff and volunteer training on the aforementioned topics. Morgan earned her Master's of Science degree in Behavior Analysis at the University of North Texas, where she studied under Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz. Her research interests include using touch as a reinforcer to teach shelter dogs calm behavior and changing problem behaviors related to aggression and separation anxiety. Morgan's thesis research involved adapting a shaping procedure to teach fearful dogs in shelters to approach and interact with people. Morgan also graduated from Karen Pryor Academy as a certified training partner. Morgan currently lives on the North Shore of Massachusetts with her two dogs, Jace and Tula, and a constant flow of wonderful foster companions. She credits her passion for helping dogs and the people who love them to her first and best dog, Jerry. Now here is our interview with Morgan Katz. Just to let you all know that because she shared so many wonderful stories that we thought you all would enjoy, this episode is a special one and a little bit longer than our others. Please enjoy. Hi, Morgan. Thank you so much for coming to our show today. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. It's our pleasure. And so to start us off and to help get you and our audience a little bit closer acquainted, I'd like to ask if you could just share a story with us, um, you know, that just kind of encapsulates why you're so passionate about your work with animals. Yeah. Um, 
so whenever I, whenever I get asked this question relatively frequently, and when I think about sort of what got me into this field in general, I always think about Jerry. Um, Jerry was my first dog. Um, I got him when I was a senior in high school. Um, I, I had always been just obsessed with dogs. So that wasn't new to me, but he was the first, the first dog that I got. Um, that was my responsibility. And I, I didn't know a whole lot about what I was doing. Um, as most, you know, high school kids who are, you know, adventuring into their first, um, their first adult responsibility like that. Um, so he was, uh, I brought him home. He was an eight week old puppy from a rural shelter in Ohio where I'm from. Um, and he was a really, really nervous puppy. Um, but I didn't really recognize that at Mm. the time. So I did a lot of the wrong things with him. Um, and he, what started out was with like sort of cowering and just being generally worried about new things and new people, Um, I, you know, like I said, I didn't really know how to handle that. And that pretty quickly turned into barking at other people, growling at other people, same thing with other dogs. And, you know, he grew into about a 90 pound dog when he was at, you know, at his peak. Um, so that quickly became pretty scary and, and pretty dangerous. Um, and I, at the recommendation of our vet, took him to um, our first trainer who used choke collars. Um, That didn't really solve the problem. Um, So then we sort of upgraded to prong collars. That didn't really work either. So then we upgraded again to an electric collar. And through that whole process, he was just, he continued to struggle through each of those training sessions. And, you know, it was, it, I didn't know at the time, you know, exactly what I was doing, um, but I knew that it didn't feel good and it didn't feel, you know, I had to keep using more and more force, which was just really hard to do to the dog that you love so much. Um, And it wasn't creating any results. So it really was a challenge. Um, He went to a board and train facility and really that was sort of the peak of like, I just, I'm not sure that this is working. I'm not sure this is what I want to keep doing for him. Mm. Um, so then I, I think very luckily found, um, a behaviorist at the vet school at Ohio state. Um, and she introduced me to clicker training, which just changed my life. Um, like real, that sounds like a cliche, but that absolutely changed my life. Right. Um, so I started to work on, on clicker training with Jerry. And at that point I thought that I wanted to go to vet school. Um, but the more I started to learn about behavior and the more I started to, you know, I, I had this project that I really just needed to figure out. I wanted him to be happy. I wanted him to be safe. I wanted him to be comfortable going out into the world. Um, and, and those sort of things, just like normal walks around the neighborhood or going to parks and things like that were really challenging for him. Um, so, and I didn't want that to be his life. So, um, we, I started to work on just really being interested in training and and getting my hands dirty in that. And I found a really wonderful training facility that used positive reinforcement and, um, you know, he started to make a lot of progress. And then I, um, did the Karen Pryor Academy, um, certified training partner program, um, which was really, really fun. Um, 
I learned a lot about just the mechanics of dog training through that program. Uh, and then I also learned about Jesus um, in that program, which again, another life-changing moment for me. Um, so in the in that dog training program, they talk about the poisoned cue. Wow. Um, and they talk about his the research that they that they did on that and showed videos and um at that point in my schooling, I had already graduated from undergraduate school, but um, knew that I wanted to do behavior in some capacity, but it's really unclear what your choices are, you know, when you're a student wanting to learn about behavior. Um, it's not just like a one size fits all kind of um, trajectory. So I was struggling to figure out how to continue to pursue that. Um, and then I learned about Jesus. So I researched UNT. Um, I found the ORCA conference that Jesus and his graduate program put on every year. Um, and I went to Texas and I met Jesus. I tagged along on an airport ride with him um, as you know, lots of lucky graduate students get to do in ORCA. Um, and I, then I went to UNT. Um, so, and throughout that whole process, I, you know, had this, uh, I knew that what I was really interested in was shelter animals. Um, I think that stemmed from Jerry, I think. Um, and just in general, I just, I, there's something that speaks to me about an animal that, that really needs you like a dog in a shelter. Um, so I, you know, it, it all comes back to Jerry for me that, you know, I, my, passion for animals in, you know, being successful in their lives, my passion for training in a way that is um, without force and without coercion and, you know, really helping that, not just helping the animal learn a behavior, but helping improve your relationship with that animal at the same time um, is just really, really powerful. And, and Jerry taught me all about that. You know, Thank you so much, by the way, first for, you know, sharing that story. It's really, really, really touching. But, um, you know, that wonderful story that you just shared, um, it, it brings up a lot of really important questions. And I think one of them comes right into, you know, how this history actually influences your current approaches that you take today with helping animals. And yeah. a, a couple of points that you really touched on, you know, you had mentioned the relationship and, and I know from working with you too, that you really see it as important that you're not just teaching a dog something, but we're also teaching their human companions how to actually have a good relationship together. Mm -hmm. And um, so how does that history and, and everything that you've gone through and everything you've learned help to influence what you're doing today? Um, well, I think the certainly having that firsthand experience with a lot of different methods of training has been really, I think one of the most impactful things that's happened to me through my, through my lifetime in, in animal training. I think, you know, it's easy to read in a book or watch videos about why some of those techniques maybe aren't um, what, what we want to be using. Um, but until, unless you've had that like really kind of personal experience with it. I think it really, it gives you a different perspective for sure. I think, especially having that contrast of um, a method that doesn't feel good to do and also doesn't give the results that you're looking for compared to one where it's like, you can't make a mistake because all you're doing is being nice to the animal. It's just really, um, it really kind of, 
makes you want to do it better all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, and it, it also makes it really, you know, to your point about talking to people about it, it makes me, I, I think be a little bit more relatable in that way. You know, like if, you know, there, there is a lot of, um, kind of controversy around what training people should be doing with their animals. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we find ourselves in situations where we're having to sort of convince people to do it the way that we think is the right way or the best way, or, um, the way that we think is going to facilitate the relationship that they're looking for. And it's hard to do that without sounding like you're giving somebody a lecture and people don't want to be lectured about how to care for their animals. Um, So having that, being able to share that personal story with people um, to, to say, you know, I've been in your shoes. I'm not passing judgment. I don't think you're bad or making the wrong choice. I just think that here's another way to do it. And let's talk about that. Um, And, you know, I, I think it, it just makes for a more well-rounded sort of point of view, I think. Um, But yeah, I think you're, you're right on with saying that the, the dog training is just a small part of it. You know, really a lot of what, what we do is, is teaching people how to care for their animals, whether it's doctors or staff members or volunteers. Um, you know, we can't do any of the things that we do without people. And there is a lot of training that goes into that. Um, so I, you know, we use the same techniques, you know, we talk about, especially in, in graduate school, we learned mostly about how to teach people, right? So the, the principles are all the same. It's just a little bit, a little bit different, <laughs> a little bit harder for me personally. <laughs> um, but, but just as rewarding, I'd say. You know, I, I want to just send like a, a big old virtual high five, you know, <laughs> what you just said. Um, you know, that's really touching what you're talking about. And I love the way you talked about, you know, how sometimes a certain procedure just doesn't feel good. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, my, y- you and I both actually all, all three of us, you know, we grew up in a, in a funny era and animal training. And it was really, you know, the nineties were like a really big, like transitional time period, moving away from a lot of more forceful techniques and moving to a lot of more positive reinforcement application. And, um, I remember the first technique I was taught, um, used, you know, the choke collars, um, you know, when the dog would pull or, you know, engage in an undesirable behavior, we would, you know, pull on the choke collar. And then when they would stop doing that, I would click and give a treat. It was this unusual fusion of punishment and reward. And, um, I had a puppy at the time, um, like you, I was, you know, fresh out of high school and I was, you know, looking for a best friend and I got this puppy. And, um, I took them and I was doing the training and I issued that first correction and it it made my gut wrench and it, my heart sunk to the bottom of my chest and my dog, even like his reaction to it, like he just arched his back, like a, like a terrified cat and Mm -hmm. then just started urinating on the floor. And, um, after that one instance, I took that collar off of him. I was like, I'm never going to do this ever again. And That was when, you know, it started me on my quest for, you know, finding, you know, better methods. But I I love that you're sharing that. And I love your reason why, too. And you're right. Nobody should really be punished for using a method that they were introduced to. It's hard sometimes to immediately know what is good and what is bad, especially if you've only seen one method or heard about one method. And and so I love how constructional you are with that and and staying focused on the goal, which is actually (laughs) helping people. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, there for a field that talks so much about positive reinforcement and shaping new behavior, um, we can be really mean to people who who do things differently than us. And I think that just turns people off to wanting to learn more about it, which is not the goal. Um, and I think when you were telling your story about your experience with a, with a choke collar, my, I, I immediately pictured um, walking down the street with Jerry. So one of the trainers that we used gave us or recommended that we use a bandana to go over the prong collar mm. because I had expressed that I was, embarrassed to give him corrections oh. out in, in public. And I can remember a time that I was walking down the street in my neighborhood and a dog was walking down the other side and Jerry was just losing his mind, pulling, screaming, barking, lunging. And I was trying to give him the appropriate correction to match the amount of intensity that he was exhibiting with his behavior, which was impossible to do. Right. Um, so I was looking like an idiot, probably trying to correct this enormous dog who um, was having such a dramatic reaction. And, and I can remember, like I was focused on what I was doing and I was looking at him and I was trying to get him under control. And then I looked up to the person who was walking the other dog and they were just staring at me. Like, I, like, I can't believe that that's how she's trying to handle that dog. And that, that I remember like, this is making me emotional. I remember thinking like, I can't, I can't believe that other people are looking at me like that. Like I love this dog so much and I would do anything for him. And I like, you just kind of lose yourself. And like, this is what I'm supposed to do. These are the instructions that I was given and, and I want it to work. Why isn't it working? And, you know, I think that's such a hard place to be as somebody who loves your animal. Like I think there's, whether people are, doing this sort of training that we want them to do or not, they love their animal just the same. And I think, you know, recognizing that and, and then also recognizing how much um, courage it takes to say, like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I, I'd like to do something different. And, you know, you need to be able to say the things that you've done to sort of to give whoever you're working with a full picture of what's going on so that then you can come up with a plan. Um, and that's hard to do too, especially when you're afraid that that's going to be met with judgment. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's a hard, it's a hard situation, but I think, you know, we just owe it to all of the animals that we want to help to, to help their people figure out how to help them. Um, yeah. You know, that's such a, wonderful and compassionate point that you're making and you know masa she's i i yeah i'm sorry like losing it yeah. but um you know masa actually was uh she was on social media the other day yesterday actually yeah and um some some person um was sharing a story and they had been using a certain set of methods trying to rescue a dog and and they specifically went because they wanted a, a pit bull type dog. They mm -hmm. specifically wanted to rescue those dogs because this person loves those dogs and knows that, you know, the, that's really the population, at least in the area that they're at, that needs the most rescuing. Mm -hmm. And so she went specifically to grab one and brought one home and it, things didn't work out the way that she planned. Go yeah. figure. It never does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um. But, but the methods that she used um, exacerbated the problem. Things got way worse. Yeah. And um, she's reaching out for help now. 
And like you're saying, she actually detailed, you know, this is what I did. You know, this is what I read about. This is what I tried. I thought it was going to work. It didn't. Can someone please help me is this individual's message. And there were like eight comments already. The post had only been up for probably like 30 or 40 minutes. I think it said on the top of it, it wasn't a long time. But this lady was just, this individual was um, just... I'm, I'm seeing your, your dog's cute butt here in the corner and it distracted me. <laughs> I'm just like, like trying to scratch it. <laughs> um, but, but this, this poor individual was really attacked by a lot of people on the, on this individual channel. Um, there were like eight comments like, I can't believe you did this. Never do that. You know, you should know better than to do this and this and this. And, and, and we can't know better if we've not been taught better. And, right. You know, our, our three, you know, the three of us, we all learned with Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz, and he always has this wonderful saying that I used to love, and he says that you can only go as far as your concepts take you. And mm-hmm. so if you're not aware that there's something else or a different method to help your companion, I, I really agree, and I, and I love this point that you made here, that compassion and understanding and education is always the best approach. And Masa and her equally compassionate you know, heart, she actually, you know, made a post and she, you know, thanked the individual for being so vulnerable and sharing the situation and, and offered some assistance. And, um, I, I hope that we, that we hear from her soon and we're able to help. So you've really shared, you know, an amazing and beautiful mission. It, um, one that I also just can't undervalue the, the importance of, you know, when in a, especially in a shelter situation, you know, just half of the job is really pairing up the dog with their new family. The, the other half is trying to help make sure that people have the tools and have the knowledge, and even the dog has the history to be able to start having a wonderful relationship with their family. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that a lot of dogs that come into shelters can often be very fearful or even sometimes, you know, extremely shy. And, you know, I was wondering, you know, if you could talk a little bit more about how you actually help those dogs overcome those situations to start having this important relationship with their family. Yeah, and I bet that people will find your journey very, your journey discovering the procedure you use very interesting. What can you share to the audience how you came into contact with construction aggression treatment? Yeah, I um, I would say the first time I learned about it was I think when I came to the shelter. I think it was from the, when I came for the volunteer orientation with you and Chase at the shelter and you guys were talking about cat and, but I also am picturing like me being alone in the room with the two of you. So I'm not sure. Maybe it was after the orientation. Anyway, we were at the shelter in Denton and um, we were talking about cat um, as it relates to dogs with ag- aggressive behavior. And I, that was, you know, we've already talked about Jerry a lot. So that was fresh in my mind that I had, you know, I had moved to Texas with Jerry. He was, had made so much improvement, but was still really um, not comfortable around other dogs, would still bark at them um, if they were near him and, and really wasn't quite where I wanted him to be yet. Um, So when I, when we were talking about cat, all I could think in my head was like, we need to do this with Jerry. Um, so Sean already shared uh, the first time that we did it was at his house. Um, and then we, uh, I worked on that with him, with Jerry for, I don't 
I don't remember the exact timeline, but it was only for probably a couple of, of weeks before he was starting to be much more relaxed around other dogs. And I would say by the end of um, that time period, um, he was able to not just be near other dogs, but like do things that social dogs do with other dogs. He would go up and sniff them or he would wag his tail when they came in the room. Um, and he eventually got to the point where he was snuggling with them and resting his head on them or letting them rest their heads on him. And I could bring home foster dogs that he had like just was friends with and there didn't need to be like this huge long introduction, which was just um, amazing. Um, and, you know, I think, I, I think a lot about the sort of the target, the, you know, the goal that you're getting to at the end of that procedure is a little bit different than the goal when you're using clicker training and, and, you know, like what we, I refer to as like engage, disengage, or, you know, a lot of the training that we do for dogs who are reactive to other dogs is teaching them to focus on you as the handler. Mm -hmm. So what we, we don't spend a lot of time teaching them in that scenario to engage with the other dog because we don't want them to engage because the way they're engaging is inappropriate. So those two things are really on two separate trajectories where like, I can remember making a lot of progress with Jerry in the more traditional clicker training session um, scenarios where he could be still very close to another dog, but he would be next to that dog and looking at me and he'd look at the dog and then he'd look back to me. And if you could see sometimes like if the other dog started to move around, he would kind of look out of the corner of his eye or you could see him kind of tense up and he still looked very uncomfortable. And he was always like right on the cusp of making a mistake. You know, if the other dog came too close or if my timing was off or, you know, if anything in the equation went wrong, then he would still bark and do all of the things that we were trying to get him to not do anymore. Um, so it, it solved the problem of, I want him to be able to be near other dogs without barking and lunging, but it didn't really get him to the point of, I want him to enjoy being around other dogs, right. um, to be able to snuggle with dogs and just sort of live his life with other dogs around him. Um, which is what we were able to accomplish with cat, which was really, really cool. Boy, that really that, was. Yeah. That, oh my goodness. <laughs> That is an amazing point. It, when I was listening to what you were describing, I, I just put cat with arrow high degrees of freedom. It really does. What you, we are providing is a way to interact with environment. And then they have so many options rather than just focusing on t to this one spot where you have to kind of engage with the owner, not yeah. engage with the environment. Yeah. Wow. And I remember... Um you know, for a while, you know, you and I were, were neighbors. Um, we had like yeah. one house, you know, in between yeah. us. <laughs> and um, I remember going over and hanging out and, you know, I was there, you know, when you first moved to Texas and I saw where Jerry was at and it was a managing, you know, situation yeah. like you're talking about. But then I came over and he's like resting on the floor with Rocky. And then like I come over yeah. another time and you've now got JJ over and there's like a doggy pile yeah. on the couch. And, <laughs> and seeing yeah. that transition from a, a dog that was really just kind of indifferent to the existence of other animals to yeah. a dog that was like, he had brothers, he had a family now, he had his, yeah. he had his dog family that he loved and cuddled yeah. with. And that, that was a really heartwarming thing because what you really did do for him is provide him a whole new facet of life to enjoy. One yeah. that was previously closed off for, you know, whatever, who knows reason, but right. it was now opened up and you shed some light on that section of, of 
how wonderful things can be. And you can see it too, that he enjoyed it. And, and just the, uh, you know, it gets me excited thinking about, you know, you're, you're a friend of mine and I follow you on Facebook and stuff. And one thing that I used to love to see was you were always taking like Jerry and JJ, like on these hiking trails together. And it really did just open up this whole wonderful set of experiences that he was able to have. And I'm just so happy I got to see it and, yeah, and that you're being able to share it now with our audience. So hopefully other people that are in the similar position can, can have these same kinds of outcomes. Absolutely. Yeah. He was, he was a, I mean, he was always a happy dog, um, but it certainly gave him more, you know, more opportunities to be happy. And it was really nice, nice to watch. Yeah. I, I, I really like that, you know, the dog love our affection, but also seeking out a different affection with their other dogs. Yeah. That's yeah. 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 Bettering everybody's quality of life. Through, yeah, through cat. Totally. Yeah. And the fosters totally. probably had the best model to learn from there on how to be cool from, from Uncle Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> so construction aggression treatment is a procedure that's typically used with aggressive dogs. How did the idea of using this procedure with fearful dogs become something that seemed worth trying for you? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I, it, I, unfortunately, I can't take credit for <laughs> that idea because um, it's a really great idea. But um, there was a student ahead of me at UNT named Angela Rentfro who who used cat with fearful cats. Um, so her, her thesis was feral to friendly with um, using cat for fearful. I think they were cats and kittens. Mm. Um so she was the first that I know of to to really put that into practice and had a lot of success um, with her project. So when I was at UNT, I had already started um, uh, volunteering at the SPCA of Texas in Dallas. And um, that's where I was going to, going to do my internship. Um, or that's where I did do my internship. And then I, towards the end of it, was thinking that, you know, starting to think about what my research for my thesis was going to be. Um, and Jesus and I discussed um, Angela's study and discussed that, you know, the need for some, you know, something to help these dogs in a shelter. You know, there are a lot of dogs who come into shelters really fearful, really worried, really, um, you know, not, not immediately soliciting attention or affection from humans. Um, and that can make it hard for them to be successful. Um, so we thought that this would be a perfect opportunity to, to practice that and see how we could apply it. And, and that, you know, a shelter setting is a relatively controlled environment. Um, so it makes it pretty perfect to do some research. Um, and, and it ended up being really successful. So um, it's, you know, the, the way that we apply it now, you know, sort of in practice is a little bit less controlled than, then we would do it if we were doing more research on it. Um, but I think that is sort of what's necessary when you're in that environment, you know, your resources are limited, your time is limited. Um, there, you know, it's controlled in the way that all of the animals are neatly in their little space, but it's uncontrolled because you never know what animals are going to be in that space from day to day. There's people coming and going, there's other animals walking around and, um, you know, sometimes it can be a little bit chaotic. So having that 
flexibility. And I think having a procedure that can still be effective when it is a little bit less controlled, I think is really important. Um, and, and that's what we found to be true with this. Yeah. You bring up some great points and, um, you know, fearful dogs and shelters, it, it seems like that that's probably, you know, out, outside of dogs that just get too excited when they're seeing people, it seems like the fear is maybe the next biggest problem that we have to work with. And, mm-hmm. and you even touch on it a little bit that it, it, touches so many aspects of the dog's success in a shelter because depending on the fear it can even make it difficult for taking care of their physical needs while they're there but then it also has an impact on potential people might be that are looking for a new companion you know they might not be so inclined you know to put in the work that it might take to bring a fearful dog home and make them comfortable and Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could share a story with us about a dog that was particularly fearful and was helped out with this procedure. Yeah, um, uh, there are a lot that come to mind. Um, I think that, you know, like we've said already that, you know, it's it's not uncommon for dogs to be, um, you know, to the back of their kennels, not approaching people, especially as they transition into a shelter. So those first couple of days are usually the hardest. Um, And I can remember talking with Jesus about um, sort of two different scenarios that you see with dogs exhibiting those sorts of behaviors. There are the dogs who came from a home where they had already learned that people are nice to them and that, you know, they've learned all of how to interact with people and, and what the consequences of those interactions are. Um, and then they're just in this new environment where they need to generalize that to these people. And it usually takes not very long for them to start to come around. And, um, so for, for dogs like that, we see a lot of sort of what I call kind of conflicted behavior where they, they um, might kind of be at the back of their kennel, but they're kind of sniffing toward you or they're kind of cowering, but they're also wagging their tail. And, you know, they're just not comfortable enough yet. And doing just a quick couple of um, trials of just moving away when they do something that we want them to do, it really doesn't take long at all for them to start following you and come out of their kennel or doing, you know, we do that a lot of times sort of out in the um, one of our yards, if, you know, you get out there and then the dogs kind of starts all over again because now they're in this new environment and there's more stuff going on that's out of our control. Um, so just sort of moving away and you get the dog following you and then pretty soon the dog's like play bowing at you and then they're having a great time. Um, the other sort of more complicated, I think, scenario is um, dogs who haven't, who don't have that learning history. So we get dogs from recording situations or from um, not even necessarily doesn't even need to be that significant. A lot of times we get dogs that were what we refer to as apartment dogs, right? Like they live in an apartment, they never go outside, they never meet new people. They maybe have their one person who they love very much, but they don't have that experience of meeting anybody outside of that human. Um, So even for dogs like that, you, I think now are in the position of needing to teach them new behavior um, instead of just generalizing behavior that they've already learned. So that process can take a lot longer, especially, you know, depending on what the history is. So we, we get a lot of dogs that come from hoarding situations where there's little to no human interaction. So that is a, a big journey to get them from never having seen or interacted with a human and getting them to be the affectionate, 
um, you know, family pet that we want them to be. Um, so the probably the most recent one that that I can think of is one of my own dogs, Tula, um, who came from a hoarding situation. Um, she is about two years old now. I've had her um, probably a year. Geez, I guess I should remember when I brought her home, but it's probably been a little bit over a year um, now. And she was, I, I think she was probably a little bit better off than most of the dogs that she came in with because she was pretty young um, is my my guess. You know, that's just a guess. Who knows exactly what causes, you know, her behavior to be the way it is. But I think, I think potentially because she had a shorter time in that environment, um, she was able to learn to be more comfortable with us pretty quickly. Um, but she, you know, was just like all of them there, you know, it, it can be hard to kind of pinpoint exactly what it is that makes that allows them to be successful because when we're in that environment we're really just trying to do everything that we can to help them right so we're not like we've talked about already like it's not that super controlled environment where we're just doing one thing at a time um we're using cat we're also using other dogs to try to help them come around we're also sitting with them while we eat our lunch we're also giving them snacks if they want snacks so it's a lot of just sort of throw the kitchen sink and and hopefully they come around really quickly um but i but you can can see when like especially when I, I, my mind goes to out in the yard a lot because in that situation I really exclusively am just using distance uh, because it it really especially in that environment it works really quickly um, in a lot of situations and you know they every once in a while you get the, a dog who you move outside and they still are just completely frozen and not doing anything and, mm -hmm. you know, you can't shape behavior if there's nothing to shape. Um, so sometimes they just need a little bit more time. Um, but, you know, very rarely are, does that period of like actually no behavior last very long, right? Like they have to be doing something, whether it's looking at you or blinking in a different way. Or, um, you know, I remember when, when, I was starting my research with Jesus. We talked about like just an ear flick is sufficient, mm -hmm. you know, like any sort of movement. It doesn't need to be the movement that you're looking for. It just needs to be an approximation. Right. Um, so it's, it's, I, I think that it's, you see the most profound change with those sort of dogs, those dogs that, you know, came from a situation where they never had interactions with humans that were enjoyable. Um, and then seeing them progress um, with using a lot of cat, I think is really, is really cool. You're working in a field that's extremely vital. Um, you know, over 600,000 dogs are actually euthanized every year in the United States. Actually, and I want to, I want to correct that. I want to say maybe now that number is 600,000 total animals is what I want to say. I, I think right now, because I think we've actually cut that number pretty good from like, you know, 10 years ago when I was first getting into the field. I mm -hmm. think it's 600,000 total animals are euthanized every year. And I think about 450,000 of them, I want to say, are probably dogs. Um, I'm probably getting that number close to right. <laughs> um, but so, you know, although, like I said, you know, that number has been on the decline over the past 10 years. Um, what would you like to see shelters do or continue to do to help mm -hmm. to push that number even lower? Well, I think there are a 
lot of really, really wonderful things that are happening in animal shelters across the country right now. You know, it used to be, you know, like I, we talked, I think on our last call a little bit about the, there is a big difference in population depending on what part of the country you're in. Um, and you know, where, where I am in new England, we have a pretty low population comparatively to other parts of the country. Um, and, you know, we've been able to make a, a huge impact in the um, volume of animals that are coming into shelters through low-cost spay and neuter programs. Um, but, you know, a lot of the efforts in the last handful of years in animal welfare in general have been aimed at community outreach. Um, and, you know, we do, we spend a lot of time doing um low cost veterinary care, like preventative care, low cost spay neuter, um, low cost training services. Training services are specifically training services with, for animals that are already having a significant behavioral challenge are so unattainable for the majority of the population. They're expensive. There are long wait lists. They are, you know, it's just difficult to obtain that service. Um, there aren't a whole lot of people who do it professionally who are, who are qualified to be doing it. Um, so I think that is, you know, all of those things aimed at how can we help animals stay where they are and set up so they don't even have to come into the animal shelter is, is I think the, where, where most of the attention should be focused and is focused in a lot of areas. Um, and then, you know, when that doesn't solve the problem entirely, right? So we also will, I think, always need to be a place where people, where animals can come when they need to. And, you know, part of our approach when animals are surrendered to us is to, um, you know, we talked about judgment-free when we were talking about training methods. That is something that really flows through all of our programs um, where, you know, there, again, is this stigma in animal welfare about if you surrender your pet, you're bad, you didn't do the right thing, you're not a responsible person, if you can't afford a pet, you shouldn't have a pet, like all of these things that... that At this point in the interview, Morgan's dogs were letting her know that she had a visitor. So here's where we picked it back up. In order to do the best that we can for the dog, like we were just talking about, it's really helpful to have as much information about their history as we can. But in order to get that information, we have to be really nice to people. We have to be compassionate. We have to, you know, share our goal of being able to help their animal in the best way that we can. Um, and to do that, you know, we need a lot of information from those people. So we have, um, we try to have as as in-depth of a conversation as we can ahead of time, um, ideally before the animal is even in our building. So having phone calls and, and you know, that gives us an opportunity to sort of to call whoever is involved in that animal's life. So if there are two people who own the animal, then we'll call both of those people. Maybe they lived with the grandma for a year. Let's call the grandma. They went to daycare. Let's call the daycare and really trying to, you know, take information from every aspect of that animal's life to paint the whole picture so that we can then be able to help them the best that we can. Um, and, you know, we, we are fortunate in, in New England, like I mentioned, to not have a high volume of animals. Um, so we are not ever in a position where we're needing to make euthanasia decisions for time and space, which is, you know, a position that not everybody is lucky enough to be in. Right. Um, and, you know, and one initiative to sort of help 
address that issue is transportation, which we are starting to kind of get involved in, in at the MSPCA. Um, but there are a lot of other organizations who have really well-established programs, um, moving animals from those areas that are really overpopulated to areas that are less so. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think that we just, as we sort of venture into this direction of having animals that have more significant challenges, um, that it's important that we are still being, you know, there, there's a balance between our commitment to the animal and providing a, a quality of life for them and a commitment to the safety and the, you know, the amount of resources that go into helping that animal be successful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that sometimes can be a balancing act, which is challenging to do, but, um, but I think, you know, I think with spay neuter outreach and more resources and, you know, behavior resources, training resources and things like that, you know, the, the wider net we can cast with those programs, I think we'll really continue to see the trend that we're seeing in, in a reduction in, in euthanasia and, um, you know, ideally just keeping animals in their homes to begin with um, is the goal. Yeah, no, that's a great goal. And, you know, you really describe a shelter that, that really goes beyond, you know, just taking care of the animals and really kind of takes on the role more of like a knowledge center for the community, yeah. providing lots of essential resources that help these families stay together and help the dogs and the families all have a wonderful, a wonderful life together. Yeah, that's wonderful. All right, Morgan, thank you so much for sharing your amazing story. And it really made me very emotional. I was very thankful that I have my partner, Sean, to kind of take over those interview roles. I was very, yeah, having a very ups and downs, sad and happy. We cannot wait to welcome you in our webinar. And I would like you to say a little bit of a message about your, the welcoming and say thank you. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, well, I, I'm really looking forward to um, talking more about this stuff with you guys. Um, you know, this is the sort of thing that I could talk for hours about, um, especially when you get me going on about Jerry. So maybe I'll find a way to work him into the fearful dog stuff. Um, but no, I, this is really exciting for me. And I, I love to hear that that people are also excited about, you know, other ways that they can learn to work with their own animals or with the animals they work with professionally. Um, and, you know, the more we can share, the better we can be. So I'm, I'm excited to talk more about it. Thank you so much, Morgan. You know, um, I, I can't wait because, you know, the same passion that you've shown everybody here, you know, I know it comes out in all of your work and, and all of the connections that you make. So I'm really excited for you to be able to meet our audience and, have this time together. So thank you so much for coming and sharing your wonderful stories and your amazing knowledge. Thank you guys so much. This marks the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope that you enjoy listening to the stories and amazing knowledge Morgan shared in the interview. Please visit our website for more information about the speakers and their presentations and to register for the webinar. We offer special discount for our first 10 people that register. We cannot wait to welcome you at this amazing webinar. An update for the Bailey interview. We have now uploaded 10 Bailey interviews. 
You can listen to all of them for free at caut.com, C-A-A-W-T.com. While you are there, click on the GoFundMe link to help us continue to make these interviews available for everybody. And please visit patreon.com forward slash C-A-A-W-T for the bonus episode from the interview with Morgan and a sneak peek of our next special guest who you will not want to miss. From our Patreon page, you can submit questions to our guest and potentially join us on air to ask questions yourself. Last but not least, our online group class has been a huge success and we are now expanding enrollment. Please visit our website, caut.com, C-A-A-W-T.com for information on how to register for our next online group class. These online group classes are unlike any group classes available. During our classes, we will not only teach you training techniques, but we will assist you in the creation of a program that will help you meet your own personal goals with your animal companions, and share and learn from other participants as they problem solve the situations that they are facing. So we look forward to seeing and connecting with you and your animal companions. If you like our show, please subscribe to our podcast or share it with your friend. And feel free to get more information and reach out to us on our website, caut.com, C-A-A-W-T.com, or our Facebook page, Construction Approach to Animal Welfare and Training. And you can always email us at C-A-A-W-T-Contact at gmail.com. Thank you so much today. We are your host. I am Masa. And I am Sean. Have a wonderful day with your amazing animal companions. <laughs>